Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now, to what you've been waiting to hear. Today, we sit down with Terrell Givens, a professor of literature and religion at the University of Richmond, where he holds the James A. Bostwick Chair in English. Brother Givens is best known for his books and articles on Mormon history, culture, and theology. He has written books such as By the Hand of Mormon, and he also has a book that will be soon released called The Crucible of Doubt, where he discusses his thoughts and suggestions for helping one who is struggling with doubt. And now on to my interview with Terrell Givens. Terrell Givens, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Great. It's a beautiful day here in Montpelier, Virginia. Thanks for asking me on. Yeah, you know, both uh, you and I are kind of out in this uh, eastern Midwest area, which uh, takes us a little bit away from uh, Mormonism and in the center of of it out west. Hey, be proud. We're part of the Mormon diaspora. That's great. And it is fun to be out here because you, everybody I encounter on a daily basis is not a member of the church. And so I, I see my missionary opportunities as a lot more uh, grander. Uh, so, well, I'm grateful to have you on today. All the listeners of my podcast are people who are delving into apologetics or having a faith crisis themselves. To a T, I would almost guarantee that every single one of them knows who you are. But maybe just briefly, if you wouldn't mind sharing for that one listener who doesn't know who Terrell Givens is, uh, maybe a brief bio about yourself. Yeah, I um, am a convert, uh, Presbyterian and Methodist backgrounds from my both sides of the family. I uh, served a mission and did my graduate work at Cornell and Chapel Hill in intellectual history and comparative literature. I've been teaching at the University of Richmond for 25 years and have ended up becoming, without any planning or foresight whatsoever, I guess a kind of specialist in Mormon culture, history, and theology. And so that's where I have published for the last 
dozen years or so. I uh, I interviewed Richard Bushman last week, and the way I wanted to split up these two interviews, I talked to him about what he thought we as a church could do better to help those who are struggling with doubts. And for from your perspective, I wanted to get um, some advice that you would have for the person, the actual person who's struggling and doubting. And so I wondered maybe if you'd just start off, most of my listeners will be familiar with an article that you wrote that I think you shared at first as a fireside that was called A Letter to a Doubter, and maybe just share some background on that, uh, because I'll link that to this interview, and that way listeners can take a look at that. But I, I want to kind of just start off our interview with you maybe sharing a little bit about what went into that paper. Well, that paper was precipitated by two factors. First, I was asked by people at Stanford if I could give a single adult fireside and uh, with no particular topic in mind. And at about the same time, there was a member of my family that was going through a fairly profound faith crisis. And I finally decided to write that individual a letter in which I tried to address what I thought might be some of the issues and concerns of relevance. And by the time I had finished, I realized that there might be a broader audience than just the one person to whom I had originally directed that. And so I used that letter and read it at the fireside in, I guess, Palo Alto, and uh, was asked by a number of sources if they could read that as a podcast or put it online or disseminate it. And so it, it got pretty wide currency, I guess. How was it uh, received? I mean, have you have you gotten any response back formally on? Well, not not formally. A number of of critics have picked around the edges of some of the arguments that I made, but. By and large, I would, would say that the response has been overwhelmingly positive by a fairly large number of people who have contacted me directly and indirectly. And uh, I, I think it resonated for a number of reasons. One, of course, because I think it just turned out to be timely. I think that the church is at a moment in time where there are there's an enormous number of people experiencing the faith crisis. I think we're at a seminal point in our church's cultural history because we're experiencing what some are calling the decriminalization of doubt, which I think is a wonderfully healthy thing. And I think part of what I did that maybe hadn't been expressed before or very frequently was to insist that there are very legitimate reasons to question one's faith that have nothing to do with unrighteousness or or, you know, being lax in keeping the commandments or negligent in studying the scriptures. But there are real, real questions and issues that the church has not addressed openly and honestly and sufficiently. I am glad you put it exactly that way because in my, uh, I joined the church when I was 17. My listeners are going to get tired of hearing that because I say that almost every podcast, but I joined the church at 17 and, and encountered anti-Mormon critical material right away dealt with it, put my testimony back together, but in a very black and white, dogmatic, my whole box was based on the doctrines of the Book Mormon doctrine. And and so eventually things didn't fit. But but what I'm finding is that all my time in the church, people were very quick to, when I went on the internet to search for answers to deep and, dark and difficult questions, they would give answers, but they never actually tackled the question of the feelings I was having emotionally and I feel like your letter to a doubter and a lot of the other things that are going on right now within Mormonism that are trying to tackle this problem goes about it from a whole different angle, which is to validate the doubter 
to let them know that they're not alone. Let them know that um, that the things they're thinking about are perfectly normal. But then to help them kind of put things back together and kind of build trust before before helping them reframe things. It, it, go ahead. I mean, I just want you to speak for a moment, maybe about that technique or that that way of going about handling critical material. Yeah. Well, I think you know, this, I'll start with a slightly different direction. Maybe the the seeds I think of my own thinking on this subject were planted many years ago when I happened to be teaching a high priest's class in a small ward. And in the course of the lesson, I, I happened to ask a question about personal revelation and how many people in the quorum had experienced that moment of the burning in the bosom. And there was a kind of nervous shuffling of feet. And finally, one brave soul spoke up and said, you know, I've, I've never really had a spiritual experience that confirmed any of this stuff to me. And another person looked at him with kind of amazement in his eyes, and he said, You haven't? Neither have I. And (laughs) pretty soon, there was just this hubbub of everybody kind of, this public confessional where everybody, Well, I haven't either. I haven't either. I thought I was the only one. And so it was that moment that I realized that there is this silent majority of people who haven't had that experience of certainty that the gospel holds out as a possibility and is idealized as the kind of appropriate rhetoric that one should hear from the pulpit on a testimony Sunday. Now, I, I want to be perfectly clear here that I, f- I fervently believe that these gifts of revelation, of, of sure knowledge, are absolutely um, valid and, and possible and accessible to members of the church. But having said that, Right? It's important to remember that in section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants, it says that that is a gift that is given to some, the gift of knowledge. But to others, it is given merely to believe. And so I guess I feel an imperative to celebrate and validate that other half of the equation, which the scriptures are calling a spiritual gift. The gift of a capacity to merely believe rather than to know. And so I, I think that people need to to not be made to feel ashamed or unworthy if the best they can offer is what the man with the blind son offered in the book of Mark when he said, help my unbelief. I'm here ready and disposed to believe, but I need help buttressing my faith. Right. I mean, the scriptures say, right, as not all have the gift of faith, and so why why should we look down on those whom God chooses at this very moment not to give a gift to? Because we all are given different gifts and not all of us have the same gifts. And so it doesn't make one lesser or more than another because his gifts are different. That's right. In fact, I think that there are certain, I guess I would say, spiritual advantages um, or at least certain aspects of a quavering faith that are worthy of celebration that don't pertain to those who have the gift of knowledge. I mean, the Lord himself said, more blessed are those who believe without seeing. So there is something to be said for leaping off the abyss and and putting that trust and confidence in a Savior in whom one doesn't have a certain knowledge. I also think that there is something really magnificent, really marvelous about recognizing the realm of freedom that is opened up by an appropriate kind of span of doubt in which one realizes, oh, it's up to me to choose 
how I'm going to interpret the evidence and if I'm going to reject it as insufficient or if I'm going to embrace it as enough on which to build a life of faith. A lot of my listeners are familiar with your whole idea that doubt has to be present for one to exercise real faith and that there has to be weight on more than just one conclusion so that, in a sense, if we were to break it down and make it simple, that there would be just as much evidence, just as much validity in reasonableness to draw the conclusion that the church is true as to draw the conclusion the church is not true. In the midst of that idea, how do you take in your own experience in thinking about your experience of the Holy Spirit, how do you come out on the side that the church is true? I guess what I'm getting at is one of my listeners wanted to know how you interpret your conclusions and how the Holy Ghost has helped you uh, to support those conclusions, if that makes sense. Well, I think that ultimately what has to happen in the life of those who confront faith crisis is they have to decide what is what is the bedrock on which they're going to build their life. I think we all have to in some ways replicate the process of right the great father of rationalism Descartes when he said okay I'm I'm going to try to reconstruct philosophy on a sure foundation and I have to begin by doubting everything that is doubtable. And so he removes from the field of certainty even belief in God, belief in the physical universe, belief in in virtually everything. Then he realizes well I if I'm doubting everything then there has to be a doubter. So that's my foundation that I must exist. So similarly, I think sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, well, what do I know for absolute certain? And I think we know more than, than, than we think. I mean, most of us know that, that life has real beauty, that there is real good and evil, that certain virtues are worth embracing and pursuing, and certain behaviors and practices are evil and to be shunned. And and sometimes you have to just build from there. I mean, I'm reminded very much of one of my favorite scriptures. I think it's 2 Nephi 9.14, where Nephi says, I know the Lord loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And that seems to me a wonderful position to take, where he's saying, okay, this this is my certain foundation. And I can't make sense of everything, but I can begin with this knowledge. And so I find that to the extent that I do embrace, in in particular, what I think are the most beautiful doctrines of the Restoration, that they give me the most satisfying account of life, of my purpose, of my origins, of my potential. And I feel that, that the beauteous response that my soul has to those teachings is a manifestation of the Spirit to me that they are true. I mean, I I think, uh, like Joseph said, that the doctrines of the Restoration, they have a, a sweet taste like honey. And I think that there is something edifying and uplifting and ennobling about these truths of the Restoration. The You know, the five fundamentals that I keep going back to, that, that we believe in a God whose heart beats in sympathy with ours, that we lived in His presence as pre-existent children, that life isn't purgatory or a punishment or a fall. It's an ascent toward godliness. That God has the capacity to save the entire human family. And that relationships should and can be eternal. Uh, All five of those were absolutely unique to Joseph Smith when he was teaching those in 1830. And each one of those powerfully, powerfully resonates with me. All right. So there's some issues, Brother Givens, that are difficult, that are complex 
that are not easy to navigate. And sometimes the apologists, when they try to answer these questions, they'll simply throw out this flat, here's the answer, this covers everything, this should do it, and you're all fixed and ready to go. In reality, the person in faith crisis sees right through that, and it doesn't work. One of the things that I try to do, and it's also something that I feel like you do very well, that Brother Bushman and others do very well, is to simply be frank and upfront and say, you know what, this is a difficult issue. It is complex. There is no easy way to weed through this. Both the conclusion that the church is completely right in this regard is reasonable and valid, just as much as perhaps what the critic wants to argue and say, the facts can substantiate their conclusion as well. This honesty seems to help one in crisis feel validated, while also giving them back their agency to see that the choice is theirs and that their hand isn't being forced. In other words, faith becomes a choice, and I know this is something you value a lot. Could you speak to the empowerment of this process and why this may be more effective and maybe even a more valid approach than simply throwing answers at somebody. Sure, because I think in many cases the stakes are lower than we think when it comes to the particulars of the problems, the challenges, the questions that are being raised. In other words, what I mean is I think that the church can and should be willing to give much more ground because conceding much of the territory doesn't impinge on the fundamentals of the faith. Let me just give you an example, okay? One of, one of the, a lot of people think that the book of Abraham is the Achilles heel of, of the church. Now I'm not going to go into any of the particulars of the book of Abraham. I just want to say, I, I just want to say this. That I think the, the how and the, and the wherefore and the, the means and the mechanisms by which Joseph Smith affected his translations or, or scriptural productions is almost entirely irrelevant to anything meaningful. Um, you know, I don't know how he did the revisions on the book of Genesis. I don't know, or, or any of the Old Testament. I don't know if he was using a Urim and Thummim or a hat. But what I would say is, read Moses 6 and 7. And then come back and tell me why on earth it should matter how that beautiful story of the prophecy of Enoch came to the world. In other words, I, I think that that we're suffering from a, a kind of non sequiturism again and again because of the particulars of transmission or Joseph's personal life or the ins and outs and flaws in church history and church leaders. We can concede all of that and it doesn't in the least touch on those five truths of the restoration that I referred to a moment earlier. And so I think that, that that is a kind of empowerment that comes to a person when he recognizes that my faith needn't be a fragile thing. There is much more room to negotiate the, the, uh, that immense kind of space that separates the message from the messenger. And, uh, and, and I think we get hung up on the wrong, the wrong questions or misattributing significance to questions that aren't all that important. I think that's important. You know, we look at the book of Abraham and, and, and I keep pointing back to Brother Bushman. This was kind of a two-part thing. I don't know that you knew this, but, but I interviewed the two of you back to back knowing that the, you two and your wife Fiona have uh, at least put on one, if not more, uh, firesides for those who are struggling. 
And one of the things he mentioned last week was the method by which we got the book of Abraham is what is criticized, but the actual production itself holds up very well to other historical records we have of Abraham. In other words, it's very easy if we just deal with the the end result to see the inspiration in it and to have evidence of its truthfulness. But when we go to the method, we struggle. And one of the things this reminded me of, when I look at the New Testament, I see the Savior often dealing with people who others brought to him being possessed of demons. And it's hard for me in my present day thinking not to look back and say at least some of those probably had some other medical ailment, some other type of illness or mental disability, but that the Savior took them in the place that they were, the understanding that they had, and he fixed the problem. And just as it's easy to maybe look back and say, it's perhaps the Savior was being dishonest by going along with these people being possessed by demons, that we also don't recognize what Joseph knew, what he didn't know, and Heavenly Father working with him on his understanding, rather than forcing a bunch of uh, irrelevant or unimportant truths to the situation into what was going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's true that the Lord takes us where we are. I uh, I also think that that you know, I mean, ultimately, what I hope emerges from this moment in the life of the church is a recognition that we need to fundamentally alter many of our foundational paradigms. Instead of just tinkering around the edges and responding point by point to the criticisms raised by the disaffected or the critics of the church, I I, I think we need a completely new revised understanding of what it, what the church is, what it claims to be, what the role of a prophet is, what legitimate expectations about prophets should be. Um, I, I, I think I think we've just got so many of our premises wrong. You know, my wife and I had a terrific experience this past summer. We were in Edinburgh, and we visited the John Knox house. And the John Knox house was briefly inhabited by John Knox, but it actually was built and, and lived in by a man named James Mossman, who was goldsmith to Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, he's a goldsmith. He's an artificer. He's a magnificent workman. And he has a treasure room on the third floor. And that room is guarded by this massive oak door. And on that door is a lock. And you look at the lock, and you learn that nobody has ever been able to pick that lock. Nobody ever successfully penetrated the secrets of that mechanism and was able to break into the treasure room. And and then you discover why. It turns out that the keyhole that you're looking at is, is a fake keyhole. And you have to move aside one of the ornamental strips of iron and underneath that is the true keyhole. And I thought, this is just a marvelous metaphor for the trouble we get into when we start off on the wrong foot, when we think we're asking the right question, when we think we have the right set of expectations and assumptions in mind. And we can spend all of our efforts and energies trying to answer questions that ultimately aren't the right questions to be asking. And I, and I think that, that's, that's what's so often happening. Um, I, I, I mean, to go back to your, the particulars of your comment, I, I'm reminded of the story of Gideon. My wife was the first one who actually pointed out that, that Gideon is in many ways a forerunner of, of Joseph Smith and the principle of modern prophetic leadership. 
right? Gideon is about to lead his his band of Israelites, his army of Israelites against, I forget which, the Amalekites or some Canaanite nation. And and he's about to go into war, battle and the Lord says, no, 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 you've got way, way too many people. you got, you know, 35,000 people that all think that you won by force of numbers. And so he, he reduces the army to, to, to 10,000. And the Lord says, no, no, you've still got far too many. And so they go to a watering place and they reduce the number further to a few hundred. And then the Lord says, okay, now they will know there's a God in Israel when you win. And the same principle is taught in section 124, verse 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord says, okay, let me explain why I'm choosing Joseph Smith to be the prophet. It's so I can show what can be done through weak things of the earth. So there he's undermined all of our expectations. And I think it's a complete misapplication and, and misappropriation of the concept of the prophet, to be singing anthems to him and celebrating him and, and, and eulogizing him and, and creating these hagiographies, when the Lord said his whole purpose was to pick a human individual with the same flaws common to all of us. And if we understood that and abided by that concept, then it wouldn't come as some shock to us when we learned that Joseph fell into to, to sin and errors, that maybe Joseph himself didn't understand how revelation worked, that sometimes he might have gotten some of his interpretations wrong. That that was the whole point all along, because the Lord wanted us to focus on the message, not the messenger, on the outcome, not the vehicle. But but we persist in erecting our prophets into heroes and idols in contravention of the clear scriptural injunction. And recognizing that even as an institution, we probably put prophets too high on a pedestal so that people walk away with this false assumption. Well, sure we do. We set our members up to fall when we create idols out of human beings. At least for us mortals who cannot claim possession of absolute truth, and obviously we aspire to it, in a world where uh, there is such sufficient evidence and lack of evidence to allow our agency are we required to honor our fellow man's choices that are equal to as as equal to ours? In other words, there are people who look at all the evidence that I do and they decide the church is not true, and I walk away doing as Elder Holland says, leading with faith. And so the question is, as as a member of the church, do I have a responsibility to look to those who have made a different conclusion to to acknowledge their choice as just as valid as my choice? Well, yeah, of course we do, but but what I would say is we have an obligation for a reason that is different than the one you intimated. In other words, you've given one good reason for tolerance, which is we need to recognize that other people have legitimate grounds for making their choices, for selecting their faith preferences. But the other reason why we need to honor those is because the Lord himself has told us that there is much that is beautiful and valid and true and edifying in those traditions outside of our own. Um, John Taylor himself, for example, made a fairly remarkable statement about the Dark Ages, the so-called Dark Ages, the Age of Apostasy. He said, he said there were men and women in those ages who could commune with God, who could, who could part the curtain on eternity and look into the futures and the destinies of mankind and walk with God himself. If those were Dark Ages, I pray God give us a little more darkness. Joseph Smith said the Catholic Church had more truth than all the rest. Section 49 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when they're preparing to go on a mission to the Shakers, the Lord makes this fascinating aside. He says, 
he says, the world lieth under sin, save certain men I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. So the Lord has enjoined us from the very beginning to be cognizant of the fact that there are many treasures that are still outside the institutional church. So it isn't just a kind of of polite condescension with which we should treat competing faith traditions, but it, we should be engaged in the earnest endeavor of trying to to, to find and celebrate truth uh, wherever it is. And that speaks a little bit to the person who's struggling, who's encountering a history, a doctrine, a theology, a Mormonism that falls outside the bounds of what the manuals say and what the average member of the faith is talking about in Sunday school. When they try to share any of their discovery or ask any of their questions, there is this very strict pushback. And yet in reality, even the brethren have talked about on multiple occasions that we should be seeking truth as individuals. We should be seeking for truth in all places. And, and as Elder Iring's father said, right, the church has never asked me to believe anything that isn't true. And yet on the local level, we are so resistant. You know, we're, we're in a church that's led by revelation and we're resistant to change. Well, I, I think one of the problems is that the church tells us far less than we think it does about, about ultimate truths. It gives us a framework and it conveys to us, you know, the fundamentals. But there are so many areas of doctrine that we think have been decided already authoritatively and that constitute an orthodoxy that, that's not really there. The church is still evolving. Revelation is still coming. Many, many principles and ideas are still undecided. As early as 1912, the first presidency formally announced that, that they weren't sure if Plural marriage was an eternal principle required in the heavens. The early church leaders, all the way through James Talmadge and B.H. Roberts, taught that we progress through all of the kingdoms until we all find salvation in the celestial kingdom. But in the 1960s, the first presidency said, well, actually, we're not sure. There is no official doctrine on that point. So there are a lot of areas in which we have, it's incumbent on us, we have the responsibility through personal study and revelation to seek out and find our answers and not claim them as orthodoxy and uh, and not let people teaching the Sunday school lessons claim orthodoxy when it's when, when that's not really the case right books like uh, yours by the hand of mormon uh books like rough stone rolling from brother bushman uh, the faith crisis firesides that you and your wife fiona and brother bushman have put on uh, interviews that you and others have done where you try to tackle the tough questions and, and to talk about doubts and in this whole faith crisis or, or dark night of the soul kind of talking about it publicly. To what degree do brethren know about the good, uh, that these people are doing and do they see it as good things that are going on that these discussions are happening? You know, I don't really know a lot about that. I, we're not coordinating these with the brethren. Um, but I assume that, that, that they generally have their ear to the ground and know what's going on. I think the talk that Elder Holland gave in, in general conference, uh, evinced a clear recognition on their part that doubt is something that shouldn't be criminalized and needs to be respected and addressed. Um, we, Fiona and I gave about a dozen of these firesides in England, Scotland, and Ireland, and we met with uh, generally, not universally, but generally supportive, uh, 
efforts on the part of the local leadership there to sustain and, and encourage what we were doing. Obviously, we couldn't have done it if they hadn't invited us into their wards and stakes to do these firesides. So I, I think that, uh, you know, the church is, is genuinely moving into to new territory with the kind of openness that has been so celebrated regarding the Joseph Smith Papers Project, the recent announcement that even the Council of 50 Minutes are going to be publicly accessible, the right. frank discussions that are being held now in so many forums uh, about faith and doubt. So I think all of these are really wonderful signs of a maturing church. Are you getting any feedback at all um, from top leadership in regards to being appreciative of of the effort you're doing? No, nothing directly, no. Okay. While it seems that, you know, and you talked a little bit about how this was generally received at the local level as you went around from place to place, received well, but not universally. That leads right into this question, which is, while it seems that the church at top levels over the past five years has begun to work very strongly towards being more open to a discussion of the tough issues and at least validating doubt and doubters, at the warder stake level, it's still a crapshoot. And my question is, do you have any feel for what um, the church is doing to, to address or demystify or destigmatize those who want to discuss these issues, issues, especially at the local level? Well, I don't. I, as I said, I think there are lots of signs that are encouraging that show a general change of attitude. I think the openness and transparency, I think there are a number of initiatives that we're going to see continue to unfold in coming months, especially through the historical department, which is leading the charge in, in this regard. Uh, I, there are, you know, the, the local of, this is both the strength and the weakness of the church, right? Is, is the principle of local autonomy, local reliance upon the spirit. But, you know, there's some people who still have their heads in the sand. There are people who still think that the guiding principle should be milk before meat because they don't recognize that in the internet age, the internet makes no such fine distinctions. So when meat is on the table available to anybody with an internet connection, it's imperative that we be there prepared to inoculate through a fuller and more responsible and truthful accounting of our history in all of its bad and good. Right. I mean, we go to Sunday school and we get a cup of milk and we go home on the Internet and we get a T-bone steak. And the problem is the steak's coming from the critic. Exactly. Exactly. Which makes it really tough. It's almost like you say, it's not it's not fair grounds and so something has to change realizing that, and I, I don't mean to push you on that issue, it's just a lot of my listeners are frustrated at the local level. They see these changes coming at the general leadership. They see the changes in curriculum that are much more open and flexible. They see the new edition of the scriptures come out. They see Elder Holland's talk. They see the type of words in the way in which Elder Uchtdor phrases uh, the things he says to essentially remove judgment out of the picture and to let differences be okay. And they see all this and they're they're happy and excited about all these changes that are happening at the top. But yet when they walk into church on Sunday, they still run into problems with with those at the local level who are judgmental and look down upon those who uh, are struggling. So my question is this, what would you say to one, and I know, I know in, in some regards I'm pushing you probably close to the edge, but what would you say to one who's in leadership at the local level, who encounters a member of their ward or even stake level, who is struggling with faith, who no longer knows and is in a faith crisis, and this person hears this podcast, 
in the midst of trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this member uh, uh, in their doubts? Well, first of all, I'd say listen to General Conference and pay attention to what Elder Holland is saying and listen to the – be attentive to the new direction in the church and be ready and willing to implement those new attitudes at the local level and minister to the the, the weak knees and the hands that hang down. I, I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to understand that our ministry – has to encompass those among us who are weak in the faith um, as we all struggle together to make sense of, of of a church, a history, and a theology that are not always uh, as coherent and, and neatly packaged as we would wish. Right, that they're not weak in the faith because they want to sin or because they their faith in, in real, you know, the effort they put in to build their faith is less than the person next to them, but simply because this is a complex church, it's a complex history, and as you pointed out earlier, God uses weak things and makes them strong, and in the midst of that, mistakes happen. Yeah, but let me say a little bit more about that, a couple of points. First of all, you need to recognize, and, and, and Fiona has realized this very sensitively, I think, that the people who are most resistant, who, who come down the hardest on the side of orthodoxy and have the least tolerance for doubt, are usually those who are the most frightened and insecure themselves. So realize that this reaction is often born of their own fear. They have testimonies of glass and they can't give. And so so realize that their hostility may be an expression of their own issues. And the second thing I would, I would emphasize is, you know, sometimes you have to be martyrs to truth even within the church. Um, you know, Orson Pratt was, uh, he, he was the lone holdout against the Adam God theory. And it was only after his death that he was fully vindicated in his resistance to teachings that the church later repudiated. And so, you know, there, there, there are the great helmet Hubners of the church, right? The valiant young LDS boy in Nazi Germany who was ultimately beheaded for taking a stand against the regime and was excommunicated by the local church, the local, right, uh, ward. So sometimes we are going to suffer at the hands of people who exercise an unrighteous stewardship, but that's the cost of delegation. When Pharaoh puts his ring on Joseph's hand, we just have to hope that Joseph will always act in the best way, but that's an impossible dream when humans are involved. Brother Gibbons, recognizing that we live in the time that we do, that the Internet is here and it is full-blown, how do you and I raise our children in a church without creating an environment for a faith crisis, if it's even possible? And, and then the follow-up question to that, where do you think that growing up in the church implies that in order to get a progressive, deep, profound faith, one is going to have to have a crisis of some kind? Well, I think inevitably everybody will face their crisis, most everybody. But there are a couple of things I think we can do, we have tried to do. One is it never helps to focus on the negatives or or the doubts. And so I think we try to follow Elder Holland's counsel, which is to celebrate and build upon the faith that you do have. The second thing is to remember that the church does not have the responsibility to teach us or our children. We, it doesn't have that responsibility. And if we think that we're safe in turning our children over to the primary and the Sunday school and the young men and women's without parental oversight of what's being taught there, then we have forsaken our duty and responsibility. 
And so I know that in our home, we always, always vetted what they were being taught because we felt it was our responsibility to ensure that the doctrines they were being taught were pure. And uh, and we encouraged frank and open, honest questioning in our home. How did you how did you vet those things? I mean, did you ask for materials before it was taught, or did you just have a no, conversation no, no. with it, kids every Sunday? Yeah, every Sunday. It was just it was just our tradition. We'd sit down to Sunday dinner and we'd go around the table, and everybody had to talk about what their lessons were about that day and what they were taught. And it you know, and it wasn't so that we could put everything through a strainer. No, we just wanted to be kept current and be a part of what the children were learning and, and encourage them to pay attention, and and it also just provided rich fodder for Sunday conversations. Which is great because obviously if something is way out of line, at least it gives you a chance to say, well, here's another perspective that I, you know, I'm thinking about. Maybe you could put that in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get away from faith, talk about faith crisis for just a moment. I want to ask you three or four, just, I think three of them are really simple. One's a little deeper, but it's outside of this topic. Will we be talking about faith crisis in 10 years or will enough be done in the next 10 years that for the most part, this will become a, a side issue like it was maybe 10 year, 15 years ago? I think it will fade once once the the church culture finishes going through the paradigm shift that I think this has initiated. Excellent. And kind of to follow that up, uh, this is a difficult question I'm going to throw at you, but in light of your theological perspectives on sin, uh, what do you make of the LGBT issue in the ongoing uh, discussion of this topic by members? Well, that's kind of a, a, a vague question. I don't I don't really detect a question there. I, I think that, um, yeah, this is, this is maybe, this is material for a whole podcast okay. unto itself, but you know, what I would say briefly is I think the church for a number of years now has been absolutely unambiguous in cautioning against judgment and in equating a particular biologically informed predisposition with sin in and of itself while still trying to maintain that heterosexual marriage is the ideal that cannot and should not be forsaken given the eternal principles on which the restoration was founded. All right, so I want to I want to wrap up here with just a couple of other questions that I want to throw at you and and we'll let you uh let you get back to the things that you've got going on through the day, but what are your thoughts on the Book of Mormon and your feelings, uh, maybe your esteem for that uh, that sacred record? Well, I, I continue to find the Book of Mormon, Mormon a stunningly complex and interesting production. Uh, it isn't my personal favorite. I, I, I incline more to the New Testament and the Doctrine and Covenants, but I find it a magnificent work. I find it inspiring. Um, I, I know that there are a considerable number of, of faithful Latter-day Saints who think that they can consider it a 19th century production and still find it a spiritually edifying work, I confess that I'm I'm not unhappy with that position per se, except that I don't find it intellectually comprehensible. I don't know what you do with Moroni <laughs> and the whole story of its production and the gold plates. It seems to me that Joseph Smith himself forced us into a kind of either-or dichotomy in terms of being fraudulent or of ancient origin. Um, and in some ways, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of tickled that it presents us and the world with this kind of 
insoluble conundrum that it does. It's a rock against which we break ourselves. And uh, I, I think that the Book of Mormon itself and the history of Book of Mormon scholarship is a prime example of the principle that I've referred to elsewhere of there always being sufficient evidence to embrace or repudiate a particular principle or in this case uh, a, a, a sacred scripture. There, there are a number of problems with the Book of Mormon. There seem to be a number of anachronisms and, and King James plagiarisms. On the other hand, there are these remarkable chiastic structures. There's the altar of Nahum. There is the, as I said, the stunning complexity and seamlessness of the narrative from beginning to end in the miraculous way in which it obviously was produced. So I have to say, I delight in its problematic character. It's neat. You know, when we talk about the issues of faith and having evidence on both sides and doubt being part of the process, the Book of Mormon almost is kind of the um, the height of that. I mean, within that book itself, there are plenty of reasons to say, you know what, he made the whole thing up, let's walk away. And yet there are other moments within that book that are so deep, so profound, that one just can't set it down. Exactly, yeah. I always end the podcast uh, along these lines, but if someone was typing on Google and they type in something and they come across and they're having questions, deep questions, and they're hurting and they feel betrayed, and they happen to come across this podcast and listen to this episode with with you, uh, Terrell Givens, what would you say to somebody uh, who's struggling? Well, I'd say that if if you can remember, then you need to summon the strength to remember the moments when you did feel a divine presence beneath the the chaos and contingencies of life. And if there's nothing to even remember, then maybe the best you can do is to find solidarity with the countless people who have devoted and committed their lives to a righteous set of standards and ideals and beliefs, never having the comfort of certainty that uh, many of us will never find. Excellent. Terrell Givens is our guest on Mormon Discussion. Uh, Appreciate it so much, uh, Brother Givens. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood, precious blood.
freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransom soul Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.